The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Tuesday, July 12th. I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. In tonight's news, state and local officials react to the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruling banning absentee ballot boxes. Patients struggle to find medications they need because they could be used to perform an abortion. Healthcare workers and nonprofit employees have a chance at student loan forgiveness. And in the second half, much ado about nothing comes to Madison. The Humane Society's Animal Rehab Center has a busy year, and the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope are revealed. All these stories and more on tonight's news, but first we go live to the BBC for reports from around the world. Hello, I'm Moira Alderson with the BBC News. Sri Lanka's President Gotabia Rajapaksha has fled the country with members of his family following months of mass protest over the island's economic crisis. Earlier, his brother, the former finance minister, Basil Rajapaksha, also left. The president flew out on a military jet days after his own home was overrun with protesters and he went into hiding. The BBC's Ranga Siralal in Colombo says Gutabia Rajapaksha is likely in the capital of the Maldives. Most probably he's now in Mali and he'll be gone to undisclosed location. Now the question is what time the speaker is going to make the announcement because the president said that he will resign on July 13th, that is today. So it is up to speaker to make the announcement of his resignation. The Ukrainian authorities say they're increasing the export of grain through formerly disused ports and canals on the Danube River Delta between Ukraine and Romania. Ukraine's recapture from Russia of Snake Island in the Black Sea means it's now safe for ships to pick up grain from the small delta ports of Reni and Ismail and ship it onto the world markets. Twitter says it's filed a lawsuit in the U.S. state of Delaware against Elon Musk in an attempt to force through the completion of his $44 billion deal to buy the social media giant. On Friday, the Tesla chief announced he was retracting his offer because he was not given information about the number of fake and spam accounts on the platform, as James Clayton explains. Twitter says that it has fewer than 5% of all of the accounts on Twitter are fake, Elon Musk says, you can't prove that. It could be as high as 50%. So there's this huge sort of like disconnect between the two. And Elon Musk says, well, if I don't know how many bots there are, then how do I know how many uses there are? You basically terminated the contract by not telling me. Twitter say, no, 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 no. We've told you all of the information. You need to prove that we've broken this contract. So there's this huge stalemate between the two. And we're seeing now that this is going to end up in, with very, very expensive lawyers in Delaware. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A Wisconsin citizen working in collaboration with the Democratic Party of Wisconsin filed an ethics complaint against Wisconsin Republican U.S. Senator Ron Johnson yesterday. This complaint details how Johnson had given over $280,000 in cash gifts to a former staffer and his wife. These cash gifts may have been an attempt by the senator to circumvent compensation limits for congressional aides, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Current Senate rules allow senators to give gifts to staffers without any limits, but do not allow for cash gifts. Johnson's spokesperson called the complaint frivolous and pointed out that the gifts had been in the public record for years. A group of Madison doctors is taking steps to set up two abortion clinics just past the Wisconsin-Illinois border. After the Dobbs v. Jackson decision, abortion care is banned in most instances in Wisconsin. It is legal, however, in Rockford, Illinois, located south of Madison, just past the border. And it is not illegal for people to seek abortion care in other states. The newly formed group of doctors, called the Rockford Family Planning Foundation, is aiming to have one clinic ready to go by the end of the week, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. That clinic will provide medical or pill abortions. The other clinic will provide surgical abortions and is expected to open in three to six months. 
A union election at a Starbucks in Fitchburg ended on Monday with the workers rejecting union membership. The election comes during a surge of Starbucks stores unionizing across the nation, including one in downtown Madison. However, at this store, workers voted 15 to 1 to reject a union, according to the Capital Times. The local union president pointed to alleged illegal terminations of union organizers as a reason this election failed. Several investigations into Starbucks anti-union activities are pending across the country, including one in Dane County. In a recent earnings call, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz announced new benefits for employees that would only be available at non-union stores that did not have union elections pending. And now for today's COVID-19 numbers. There were 1,606 new confirmed cases of the virus reported in Wisconsin yesterday, while 13.5% of COVID tests were reported to be positive over the past week. Additionally, there were two new deaths from the virus reported in Wisconsin yesterday. That brings the state's total confirmed COVID-19 death toll to 13,169 people since the pandemic started. And now on to today's top stories. After the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled last Friday that absentee ballot drop boxes are not allowed under state law, local and state officials from both sides of the aisle are calling for action. WORT reporter DeMorian Thompson and producer Nate Wegehout have the story. Top Madison officials introduced two new measures today aimed at strengthening election integrity and protecting election officials. The first would protect election workers from harassment while doing their jobs. According to a poll by the Brennan Center for Justice, a nonpartisan law and policy group, one out of every six local election officials have reported experiencing threats while working. That includes right here in Madison. Scott McDonald is the Dane County clerk. You know, my office has been subject to harassment, and I know clerks around the state as well. So, you know, this is an unfortunate trend. The legislation was written by Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, along with Alder Patrick Heck, Common Council President Keith Furman, and Council Vice President J.L. Curry. The proposed ordinance announced at a press conference earlier today creates stricter fines for people charged with disorderly conduct targeted at an election official. Now, this disorderly conduct charge carries a fine of no more than $1,000. Madison attorney Michael Haas says that the ordinance is made to protect election workers. The idea behind the disorderly conduct ordinance is to increase accountability for those who harass or threaten local election officials because of their job. These are public servants that are just doing their job, and as the mayor said, it is unacceptable to have them constantly have to deal with personal insults and threats. The maximum forfeiture for disorderly conduct tickets is set at $1,000. And these citations for disorderly conduct directed at election officials will be issued uh, by law enforcement at a higher amount than other disorderly conduct citations. Another measure announced today calls on all elected officials to not undermine confidence in election results or in election officials. Additionally, the resolution directs election staff to implement any necessary security measures for the city clerk's office to ensure the safe conduct of elections. To show just how safe our elections are, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway encourages doubters to watch the elections for themselves. Our poll workers, to become a poll worker yourself, if you have any doubts about the electoral process in Madison or in the state of Wisconsin, I encourage you to sign up to be a poll worker because you will learn firsthand how safe that process is. Also speaking at today's press conference was Dane County Judge Everett Mitchell. Mitchell is running for state Supreme Court next year. As Congressman Lewis said, we must do the work that justice and equality calls us to do. So this is a way for us as a city, as a county, as a state to do something that will get us into some good trouble, as he would say. So I think it's time for us to get into some good trouble and make sure that we're protecting those in our community. Judge Mitchell also said that drop boxes are not only safe and reliable, but give both voters and election officials more options and flexibility in participating in the democratic process. 
Both measures are scheduled to be introduced at next week's Common Council meeting. The local measures come as state election officials also scramble to create new guidance in the wake of the state Supreme Court's ruling last Friday, which found that absentee ballot drop boxes cannot be used in elections. And now, to DeMorian Thompson. The Wisconsin Elections Commission held a meeting this afternoon to determine new guidance for the clerks in the wake of the ruling. The clock is ticking as we exactly four weeks away from the August 9th partisan primary. Meanwhile, two Republican candidates held a press conference today calling again to decertify the 2020 presidential election. The so-called call to action comes from state representative and Republican gubernatorial candidate Tim Rantham and Tippewa Falls attorney Karen Mueller, a candidate in the Republican primary for attorney general. Rantham says that the Supreme Court ruling bolsters his drive decertify the 2020 election. What was created then, in my opinion, is the reason to decertify because those numbers got mixed in with the legitimate ballots. And so the whole thing's a cloud. So in a way, we don't know exactly the true outcome of the election. So how can you certify something that is unknown? And yet it was certified. So we have to decertify that to turn that switch back off again and then move from there. Multiple court cases and recounts have affirmed that Joe Biden won the state of Wisconsin in the 2020 presidential election. There is no way to decertify the 2020 election. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggehout. And I am Damarion Thompson. The overturning of federal abortion protections comes with a number of legal questions about many health care matters. The imposition of abortion restrictions could complicate access to medications for conditions like autoimmune diseases and cancer. For more, WORT reporter Madeline Plattenberg explores this issue. Methotrexate is a drug used in treating ectopic pregnancies, but methotrexate is also the gold standard in treating various autoimmune diseases, including lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Social media has been awash with some patients claiming that access to their arthritis or cancer medications have been curtailed because methotrexate can cause abortions. The Arthritis Foundation is the largest patient advocacy group serving 58 million Americans with diagnosed arthritis. The foundation supports patients in breaking down barriers and access to treatment, improving quality of life for patients to empower them to tell their stories and to make connections with others. Some of the foundation's other mission work involves support groups, online forums, and in-person events. Anna Hyde is vice president of advocacy and access at the Arthritis Foundation. She says they've started hearing reports of patients having difficulty accessing their arthritis prescriptions because they contain methotrexate. About two weeks ago, we started to hear reports that patients were potentially being denied methotrexate because it is used in abortion management. first report that we got in was from a provider office, and it, of course, sent off alarm bells and made us wonder how widespread that was. And so we've been on a fact-finding mission ever since. Um, It may be that patients haven't gotten refills yet. It's only been two weeks. Patients are often prescribed methotrexate in a 30-day fill, sometimes even 90 days. So there are a number of people who may not have been in a position to have confronted the issue yet. Um, It may be that it's not as widespread as we fear it could be. It was difficult for this reporter to find if various prescribing policies have changed in Wisconsin. Calls to several of the largest hospital systems in Wisconsin went unanswered, and the Arthritis Foundation wasn't able to point to any example in the state. But Stephen Schultz, the Arthritis Foundation's Director of State Legislative Affairs, says they're still nailing down where these restrictions are happening, who is the source of the denials, and what patients are being told. He says they're still clarifying the full impact in the wake of Dobbs. Hyde says interrupting access to medication leaves patients with few or no way to treat their conditions and creates insurance and affordability barriers. Arthritis patients facing barriers are encouraged to reach out to the Arthritis Foundation as the team is fighting and addressing key policy issues, both on the state and federal level, and are making it a priority to continue keeping these medications accessible. The Dobbs case, uh, I think you're seeing a lot of confusion, like Anna mentioned. There's people that are kind of... Uh, pharmacist providers aren't uh, lawyers, they're not lobbyists, they're not dealing with kind of the everyday um, uh, examination of, of law. So there, uh, we're seeing the potential for situations where uh, that kind of healthcare provider 
uh, in the supply chain may kind of have to take a step back to examine, okay, what's my liability? What's, am I breaking any laws? Am I doing anything incorrect um, uh, by uh, whether prescribing or dispensing this medication? And so I think that's led to uh, the likelihood of this occurring uh, more often in, in cases where there are these trigger laws. I think we identify that some of these states that do have trigger laws are going through a process of, of going through lawsuits. Uh, Wisconsin's kind of one of those states where there is a kind of lawsuits playing out. There's states that may be coming back in this session to do a special session um, uh, and legislate on this issue. Um, and Or there just may be individual level confusion, even in states where they may not even have um, this level of uh, whether it's kind of... Um, uh, a trigger law related to uh, uh, medicated medication-induced abortion, or there's a handful of states uh, that have uh, methotrexate specifically uh, expressly mentioned in the statute. So um, uh, that's probably led to some uh, confusion in this uh, that could be uh, kind of continuous, or especially as as things pop up, um, and so. There are some examples uh, we've, we've been able to provide, um, like uh, Kentucky. Kentucky's Board of Pharmacy was able to issue a clarifying emergency rule, uh, just stating we know that these types of medications may be abortion-inducing medication, but if you see them prescribed, assumed it's for its intended purpose or its indicated purpose. So basically saying if you're seeing methotrexate uh, being prescribed, assume it's being prescribed for something like rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and, and so that's something that we may see and, and there may be encouragement of more from boards of pharmacies is, is that type of clarification to reassure um, the parties involved. The Arthritis Foundation recently put out a statement in response to the methotrexate access issues to raise awareness and is encouraging patients to share their stories and raise awareness. The Arthritis Foundation recently put out a statement in response to the methotrexate access issues to raise awareness and is encouraging patients to share their stories. The statement includes helpful information for what patients should do if they're running into issues getting their medications. Anyone in need of help getting their medications can reach out to the Foundation's helpline or call at 1-800-283-7800 if interested in sharing any experiences or stories. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Madeline Plattenberg. now 621 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Healthcare workers, teachers, and other frontline workers have been hit hard over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. But the federal government is working to alleviate some of that stress with the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. To help get the word out about this program, United Way of Dane County is starting a service to help folks navigate the complex world of student loan forgiveness. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Renee Moe, the president and CEO of United Way of Dane County. So, Renee, just sort of kicking things off here, uh, let's start with the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. What is what is that program? Well, the Federal Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program is a program that is promoted by the federal government to help essential workers, those employees who are in government or nonprofits or higher ed, um, have the potential to have some loan forgiveness for student loans. It's a program intended to help essential workers um, be able to um, really provide some relief because they know that those sectors have a harder time recruiting and maintaining really quality employees, and it's an opportunity to help do something great for people who are doing great things for our community and country. And then how does the United Way of Dane County, uh, how, how are you guys involved with all of this? Sure. Well, we have a wide nonprofit network and a lot of partners in the community. So Ascendium, who is very well-versed in student loans, and they have a lot of services, uh, has partnered with United Way philanthropically and from a community leadership perspective for literally decades. 
And so they reached out to us and they said, because United Way has strong knowledge and trust and networks with the nonprofit community and many other partners, they approached us to see if we could help promote PSLF to make sure that more people knew about the student aid support and waiver opportunity to be able to help reach more people and hopefully allow more folks uh, to know that they're eligible or to find out if they're eligible and to hopefully get some of those debts waived. And then who is eligible for this new program? What what sort of folks can apply to this? Yeah. So this is uh, any qualifying employer organization includes governmental organizations at any level, so federal, including U.S. military, state, local, tribal governments, nonprofit organizations that are tax-exempt under Section 501c3 of the IRS Code, other nonprofit organizations that may not be tax-exempt under the same IRS codes, but who are also providing public services through their nonprofit status, and full-time service in AmeriCorps or Peace Corps workers. Those are all eligible. And uh, the specific details, you have to work full-time at a qualifying employer, and the definition of full-time is flexible. That can mean you have one job that meets your employer's definition of full-time work at least 30 hours per week. Um, or whichever is greater, or you can combine the hours at qualifying part-time jobs to meet a minimum requirement of combined 30 hours work per week. So um, there are some other eligibility criteria in there, and that's one of the things Ascendium is helping with is to make sure that people have some support to be able to figure out if they're eligible and to know how to apply for that loan forgiveness. And so you mentioned full-time uh, employees uh, who mm-hmm. are working full-time for a nonprofit or government position. Is there like a certain amount of time that they have to have been with those positions? Like, uh, do they have to be there for a certain number of years before they qualify for this uh, program? Yes. So this relief to um, uh, healthcare frontline workers, all the folks I just mentioned, uh, it is uh, trying to remove the burden of student debt for employees who work for 10 years of work at a qualifying organization. So uh, it is 10 years of work, and uh, again, there are some other criteria inside of that too, which is why it's really helpful to look at some of those services um, that Ascendium is providing for folks to see if they're eligible. And then, so why is this important that you're going out and letting people know about the public service loan forgiveness program? Uh, why, Why are you involved with this? We're involved because this loan waiver is expiring on October 31st this year. And we know that there haven't been as many individuals who have applied who are eligible. And this is resource that the federal government has made available. And for those individuals who are working in these sectors and organizations, we think it's a great opportunity for folks to stretch their budgets a little further by using these resources that were dedicated by the federal government to be able to help folks with their um, budget management and also that stress and burden of student loan debt. So it's one of those things where the opportunity is there, and if we can help our constituencies and nonprofits and others in the community know about the resource, well, that really ties into uh, one of our really key pillars of strengthening a stronger nonprofit ecosystem through trust-based collaborations. It helps us provide great information out to the community, and it also allows us to invest in and value our people because we know that um, to make great missions happen and to make great, strong communities happen, um, our staff need to be strong and healthy, and this is a great uh, way for folks to have well-being in that way as well. And so now if people are interested in joining up with your service that you have here with Ascendium, uh, where can people go to uh, find help with this? How can people join the service? Yes. So there's a lot of information about PSLF in general at studentaid.gov. And if you can uh, type in studentaid.gov and look for PSLF limited waiver, there's a lot of the technical information there. Also, Ascendium is providing free services to any partner or anyone affiliated with United Way of Dane County. Um, There's personalized student loan counseling, and there is a toll-free helpline for conversations there. Um, There's a knowledge center online. There's a website so people can learn more, talking about engaging financial education. And there are also, by request, optional live training sessions. So if you're a nonprofit or an organization uh, or work for an organization that is eligible, Ascendium is willing to come into the organization and provide live web presentations with a variety of dates all throughout the summer. So the goal is really to help more people know about this, get the support to actually see if they're eligible, apply, and hopefully get some of those loan debts waived.
And so, Renee, I think that's pretty much all the questions that I have for you. Do you have just okay. any final thoughts, Any uh, anything that we didn't get to that you'd like to talk about? Hmm. I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I really United Way and our partner employees, and again, anybody who's eligible, um, just you know, to know about this, uh, it's just a great way to you know use a resource that is, is existing. Uh, we just want to make sure that more people know about it so they can you know have the opportunity to see if they're eligible, especially in a tight labor market and for folks who are feeling that compression in their budgets because of inflation and some of the other challenges. I've been talking with Renee Moe, president and CEO of United Way of Dane County, about the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. Renee, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. Thank you. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Madison's theatrical calendar is heating up for the later part of the summer. Madison Shakespeare Company is putting on Much Ado About Nothing on July 15th. WORT reporter Heron Splinter spoke to the director for this edition of In the Round. You're listening to In the Round, Madison's theater beat. I'm Heron Splinter. I'm speaking with Amber DiPietro director of Madison Shakespeare Company's upcoming production of Much Ado About Nothing. It is her first time directing for this company. Amber, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Much Ado About Nothing is a comedy that has been getting laughs for centuries. I've heard that it is one of the first rom-coms. The way it makes fun of romance and marriage is pretty timeless, I think. How are you navigating the humor and what do you find most amusing about the show? Well, actually, we would probably call Much Ado About Nothing a comedy that turns into a tragedy that turns back to a comedy. So you mentioned it being like a rom-com show, and that's kind of interesting because in the rom-coms, usually there's like this epic romance and we come together against all odds, and yet there's got to be some sort of curveball, something that puts everything in jeopardy, which is really what happens in Much Ado About Nothing Um, We have two weddings in Much Ado About Nothing. We call it bad wedding and wedding number two. Um, And so Shakespeare time and and weddings is like the accumulation and the classic occurrence when it comes to how do I define a comedy? Well, in the end, everybody falls in love and everybody gets married. But this Much Ado About Nothing is a bit more unique in that it doesn't just go straight forward to the wedding. It actually, this tragedy here um, falls um, befalls on Hero and befalls on Beatrice and their family is just shattered. And the fact that he's able to like turn that around and come back and make it a comedy is what makes Much Ado great. The other aspect being um, with the the humor that's involved in the show. So typically when you think of weddings, you think, oh, laughter, joy. But when it comes to tragedy, you don't think about laughing. Now, often Shakespeare will use like a jester character or um, a clown. Well, we don't have those, but we do have some soldiers who have just left and their company comes to Messina, Texas. And in these group of soldiers, they are just ready to blow off some steam, have a good time, um, joke with their buddies. And and just with the way you see Don Pedro and Claudio kind of buddy up against Benedict to play this big trick on him, um, really keeps you in stitches for the middle part of the show. This play was published in 1623, and as I understand it, it was pretty unconventional for the time. It has lots of euphemism, and it deals with the sex lives and gender roles of the characters directly. Could you give us some details about that and, and tell us what you know about how it was perceived at the time? So at the time... Shakespeare was considered a writer for the common man. Now, there are a lot of different schools of thought on who Shakespeare was, if he really wrote his plays, um, and who he wrote them for. So it depends on who you follow. But I like to think of Shakespeare as actually being a writer for the modern man, modern for his time. If we think about it now, if someone says, I'm going to go see a Shakespeare play, or I'm going to read Shakespeare, we think, ooh, they're cultured. They're so wonderful and highbrow. Isn't that amazing? But if you actually read Shakespeare, you're like, he's a dirty man. All right. He's got some, he's got some sassy jokes in his show, um, in his play. So he will say things that 
you would hear at the time one soldier say to another basically if i was to say in the modern tongue i'd be like that chick is hot what do you think um except it's in shakespearean language so we think oh they're being very profound at that moment um so when i think about shakespeare in the time he was written i like to think of it as him being a writer for the modern man he did not write for the upper classes and keep it um this upper crust mentality he said what are the people who are coming to see my show off the streets what do they want to see and what do they want to hear so i sort of take that attitude with directing it today so it does take place in modern day but we haven't taken away from shakespeare in fact we have just honored the heart of what shakespeare is is having a story for the modern audience you mentioned that you're setting the play in messina texas instead of messina sicily uh, how else have you modernized it? Other than the location, bringing Messina to a ranch in Texas, um, we had definitely would modernize the clothing. So what you're going to see is not going to be somebody in 16th, 17th century attire. You're going to see them in modern day attire. So we have jeans, we have suits, we have skirts and tank tops, anything you'd see somebody um, who is going to a wedding today, you would see that happening in Messina, Texas. Now I'd like to talk about you. I saw that you previously acted in Madison Shakespeare Company summer shows for two years. What have you learned from that and what have you learned from directing now? Well, a few years ago, I decided that I wanted to see every aspect of the theater. I come from a unique background. As a kid, I was in Destination Imagination, Odyssey of the Mind, so kind of that improv background when I was a kid, and then took a little break from it when I was working at Sacred Heart School, which is where I'm at now. The music teacher said, how would you like to help me direct some shows? And, and be on this team with me. And I said, that sounds fantastic. And eventually I took that program over from her. So I had been directing every other year, either a children's musical, fifth through eighth grade, or a play. One of my earliest jobs was a board operator. So I worked for a radio station and I managed five different radio stations. And uh, so getting that early on in my high school years was really fun. So knowing how to use soundboards, knowing how to switch things and having that tech aspect was already kind of in my my wheelhouse and then adding my creativity and arts to it. It was just a natural progression of what aspect of the theater can I get involved in. So I think I have been everywhere at this point and I, I love it. This production is going to be outdoors, a traditional environment for Shakespeare. How does that change the directing and acting style compared to an indoor theater? Lots of sweat? <laughs> Definitely that. Rehearsals outdoors as often as possible. When it rains, you're like, okay, is it just going to be a little sprinkle on me or are we going to go for a downpour? Like yesterday, it was like, all right, we need to move inside because no one can see a foot in front of their faces. So definitely taking weather into consideration, but also powering through. Thinking of like people who are sports fans, for example, they don't cancel the game for a little rain. We're not going to cancel theater for a little rain. We're going to go keep on through and be professionals about it. When it comes to practicing for rehearsals, one of the biggest things, I think when a, someone is on stage, we will say, um, please project, you have to be loud. But there is the extra amphitheater set up behind them. Usually it's a conducive space to carrying sound versus outdoors, your voice can get lost. So the actors have to adjust their um, directions, how they project their voice and just giving those reminders. Um, if they t are up the stairs and turn their head, their voice is sent out to the cranes in the beautiful lake that's behind. Then you have ambient noise. You never know what cranes are going to be flying by at any given moment. And in the show, you just say those cranes were supposed to be there and have that noise. And actors can respond accordingly. Lastly, I want to ask, people mostly say that Benedict and Beatrice are the stars of the show. These lovers, suspicious of love in the story, uh, they say they can't possibly get married. Then they do. In your production... Who are the characters, Benedict and Beatrice? I love Beatrice. That's probably why I love Much Ado About Nothing. So when I was asked to direct this show, I was excited because Beatrice is like the character for me, right? She's She is definitely not one-sided. She has a backstory and what she says and what she does um, doesn't always seem conducive unless you study it like I have in the literary sense actually I taught much ado about nothing to my eighth graders for many years I was a language arts teacher um, and so 
it's one that I have read over and over and over again. And if you look at these two characters, Beatrice and Benedict, they proclaim not to love each other. A trick is played upon them and then they fall in love. And you can read it at face value and just say, oh, it's a good story. Nice job, Shakespeare. However, if you study them, there are a few hints that maybe this isn't so. Beatrice has a line early on in the first meeting of the company that comes to stay at her uncle's house. And she indicates that she lent her heart to Benedict for a while. And she gave her two hearts for his one, and he wanted of her a false dice. Now, it is just one little line. There is no other mention of them ever meeting, having a history. We know that there is a whole other story pre-Much Ado About Nothing. When we come to them in the time of Much Ado About Nothing, it is more compelling because that history has been building, which makes it that multifaceted story instead of just being a straight point A to point B. Is there anything else about this play you'd like to let our listeners know? Our location. So think of this as not just, I'm going to go see a show. There are many places around Madison you can go see a show. This is definitely an excursion that is worth making. Madison Country Day School, their outdoor amphitheater is beautiful. There is a lake area behind where we perform. There are beautiful cranes. I see a red-tailed hawk. I saw a beautiful bluebird this morning. So like the nature that surrounds where we are performing and really immerse yourself in what is now become Messina, Texas. I've been discussing Shakespeare's play Much Ado About Nothing with Amber DiPietro. She is directing it for Madison Shakespeare Company. You can see it starting July 15th at the Madison Country Day School. Navigate to madisonshakespeare.org for more. Amber, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a busy year at the Dane County Humane Society's Animal Rehab Center, and tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg walks through all the animals to come through its doors this year. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I thought I'd give an update on our wildlife admissions for the month of June, knowing that we're a couple of weeks here into July, and just talk about how different it has been this year compared to last year, especially with our bird diversity and different species that we have in rehabilitation, as it's pretty reflective, I think, around the state and probably around the nation uh, for seeing a decrease in our waterfowl admissions specifically. Um, And every year changes for booms and busts of different species. So, you know, some years we have lots of robins, some years we have lots of grackles. So, you know, what species do we have in care right now? And what are we rehabilitating in the middle of the summer? And how do those numbers look? Because we've had a couple of really strange years in our wildlife center, Um, And again, affecting all people throughout the United States, but we've had to deal with many different disease outbreak situations. Uh, So not only COVID-19, which obviously affects people, but also wild animals, mostly our mammal species. But that obviously impacts our ability to have volunteers and staff and interns and everybody else because, you know, we don't want to get each other sick while we're in close contact with wildlife and then also have to be wary of what species COVID could be transferred to. Uh, But that was a huge issue over the last two years, uh, still ongoing. And now we have the highly pathogenic avian influenza, which has affected our waterfowl species and our waterfowl numbers this year, but also other mammals that are known to get it. So our foxes in care, which you can read, there's a New York Times article about the foxes with avian influenza that we received in this year, and some really great information uh, coming from our lead certified vet tech, Erin, and then also uh, the UW-Madison and the wildlife health specialists here in the state, especially at the Wisconsin uh, Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory, who helped us with that processing. So we've got COVID-19, we've got HPAI, and there's a whole host of other diseases that we work with on a daily basis. You know, we're testing uh, animals or at least processing animals for rabies testing. That happens and still occurs and it's been in high numbers in the last few years. And there are diseases that are not yet here, but that we have to be highly aware of. So something like the rabbit hemorrhagic virus uh, is not in Wisconsin yet, but we have to be on high alert for it. 
So despite all of that, uh, so between 2021 and 2022, obviously that means we've seen some differences in our species intake than we normally would. Um, more specifically, less mammals than we would normally be able to help due to legal restrictions. So the Department of Natural Resources is still prohibiting the rehabilitation of bats in the winter, which is our largest program at DCHS, which has been a very, very difficult thing for us as rehabilitators to not be able to care for those species knowing that we have so many bats in downtown houses and that maybe living in some of the older buildings and it's not their fault they end up being with people, but as long as there's not been an exposure, it's definitely something we wish we could continue rehabilitating over the time period that they need it the most. Um, and then things like mink and weasel and badger were still prohibited from any of that rehabilitation in the state because of COVID-19 regulations. So that has dramatically decreased our ability to help some of our mammals. Um, that being said, we've rehabilitated uh, plenty of rabbits and possums and other things this year, so that's great. But for birds, it's been even more interesting. Last year, in 2021, I would consider waterfowl to be our heaviest admissions, and those started quite early. So in the month of April, we were starting to get a boom of ducks. We ended up with over 450 mallards and wood ducks last year, which was probably one of the highest on record for DCHS Wildlife Center. And this year, we have barely had any. So just to give you an idea of what the volume of patients it is that we're working with, with minimal staff and volunteers, in 2021, so this was the last, uh, we'll use the month of June, we had 526 animals that had been admitted in that month. And then this year, we've had only 486 admitted. So pretty close. It's about a 7% less this year than we had last year. But we also usually see... 1300 animals by the end of June, which is almost exactly, we're almost at the exact same numbers as last year. So that means likely we've admitted other species more than we have our waterfowl, which would make up for that difference, uh, which is the case. We've had over 22 foxes admitted, for example, in 2022 compared to 2021. Uh, so that's obviously a huge difference for us. And that's a big focus since there aren't many fox rehabilitators in our area. So we did focus on that mammal rehabilitation this season. But if we look at the number of uh, mallards and wood ducks, for example, admitted between 2021 or 2022, Last year at that time, by the end of June, we had 263 of the mallards admitted to 163 wood ducks. And this year, we've only had 115 mallards and only 54 wood ducks by the end of June. So that's a, that's a huge difference, almost half the numbers that we would have seen last year. And we had over 194 of those mallards released by the end of June last year. Uh, so far, we've only released our first group of ducks. And uh, this year has been a very slow, very staggered entry type of admission for rehabilitation of waterfowl. And we really do think that this is likely related to the avian influenza virus because it is known to cause reduced reproductive success in wild populations. So that means if fewer uh, babies are being hatched or successfully surviving, then that means fewer are probably admitted to rehabilitation. So definitely has been a strange year for that. On the opposite end, we've actually seen more hooded mergansers this year than we did last year. And we also have had more geese, uh, tiny goslings this year than we have had last year. So um, we actually have seen about a 40% increase in those species. And that's, I think, just maybe uh, it could be attributed to goslings being left behind. Maybe mergansers seeing more of those because they are very common to nest in wood duck boxes alongside them. So could just be a random chance. Still not very many that we see. But I thought that was really interesting to kind of talk about those updates. We also, in this last month, have released 68 different animals. Uh, you know, we had a whole group of house finches. We had uh, the first group of mallard ducks, like I mentioned. We had 11 cottontail rabbits that we were able to release. And then we had a good number of others, like morning doves and grackles and robins that also got to go. So it's been a really fun month here. And we're still looking into July, where we start to see a slowdown of some of our species, especially songbirds coming in as the first spring season babies have kind of finished their brood, but a lot of species are going to have a second one. So robins, for example, are going to have a whole nother round of babies here in this next month. And then we'll be looking forward to our kind of early fall nesters. So species like cedar waxwings and American goldfinch are going to be coming in here very soon. So that is exciting for us because we get to work with a whole bunch of different species, as well as some of our common ones that might breed more than once in a given summer. 
We've also had a number of animals transferred to some of our really great local rehabilitators. Uh, we do have another small mammal rehabilitation center here in our area, uh, Wisconsin Wild Care. So they help with a lot of the smaller mammals like 13 line ground squirrels. Uh, they do mostly raccoon rehabilitation, which is very tight this year. We've had a great number of raccoons that have been found orphaned. But they also do chipmunks and rabbits and other things. But for birds, definitely, uh, we're going to be the closest rehabilitation center in Dane County or in most or all of southwestern Wisconsin. So there's definitely options out there. Uh, highly encourage folks to call the DNR, Department of Natural Resources, if they do have a species that they need or think needs rehabilitation, which means that we'll help uh, to triage where that patient might go, depending on capacity and depending on licensing and how things are going with disease outbreak situations right now. So currently we have over 200 animals in care. That's a lot of animals to take care of. And we really appreciate all the community support and questions and other things that we can try to help people with. So thank you for listening to this segment on WORT. Remember to give us a call if you have any questions about a species. Our number is 608-287-3235. Thanks for listening. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. The first cosmic pictures captured by the James Webb Telescope have been released. Radio astronomy host Andrew Nine describes why these images are so important for our understanding of the universe. Good evening, and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine, and tonight... I'd like to talk about some very exciting news. We have the first public images from the James Webb Space Telescope. JWST was launched this past Christmas Day and has since made its way about one and a half million kilometers, or about one million miles, from Earth. Now that all of its instruments have cooled down to about 7 Kelvin, or 7 degrees Celsius above absolute zero, JWST is now conducting its first science observations. Yesterday, the White House unveiled the first public image gathered in these observations, nicknamed Webb's First Deep Field. There were more images released this morning by NASA, including extremely high-resolution pictures of a star-forming region as well as a planetary nebula, but we'll save those for future episodes of Radio Astronomy. Tonight, I'd like to walk you through how an astronomer looks at a picture like the Deep Field. It's helpful if you have the picture pulled up on your computer or mobile device, but you don't need to. If you would like to see the picture as I talk about what's in it, look up Webb's first deep field, and it should be among the first results. First of all, what is this picture actually showing? In the center of the image, that fuzzy point of light, is a galaxy cluster visible in the southern hemisphere known as SMAX 0723, roughly 5 billion light years from Earth. You'll also see some foreground stars in the image, which appear as very bright points with eight spikes, kind of like snowflakes. Those you can ignore for now. The real heart and soul of this image are all of the other points of light around SMAX 0723. Those are all galaxies much further away from Earth, extending almost all of the way back to the beginning of the universe more than 13 billion years ago. This is what astronomers mean when we say deep field. As part of its first science operation, JWST pointed at a seemingly empty patch of sky roughly the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length and stared at it for about 12 hours, gathering as much light as it could in that time. The more light a telescope can gather, the fainter and more distant objects it can see. JWST is the largest space telescope launched to date, and it's capable of gathering more light than any other space telescope, allowing it to see further into space and time than ever before. If you have the picture pulled up, feel free to zoom in on it now, anywhere you like. You can also scroll around the image if you'd like. Everywhere you look, there are more and more galaxies stretching further and further into space. The redder the galaxy appears, the more distant it is because the light that it emitted billions of years ago has been redshifted by the expanding universe. But don't let the colors in this image fool you. JWST is an infrared telescope, and all of the colors you see now were applied during processing to make the details in the image easier to see. It's still true that the redder galaxies are further away, but because we're actually seeing infrared light at longer wavelengths than what we can see with our eyes, we can see galaxies even further out and with higher resolution than other space-based telescopes like Hubble. 
Look again at the center of the image. You'll notice around the central galaxy cluster there are what look to be warped galaxies and rings around the cluster. What you're seeing is a phenomenon known as gravitational lensing. A bit like how a magnifying glass makes small objects appear larger than they are, a gravitational lens magnifies the light of objects that happen to be behind it. Those warped galaxies you see are located behind the galaxy cluster SMAX 0723 and are much further away, which is why they appear redder. The rings those warped galaxies form are known as Einstein rings. One of the predictions that Albert Einstein made in his general theory of relativity was gravitational lensing, that a massive body can bend the passing light from another object and magnify it. The first gravitational lens was discovered in 1979, but what we see now is one of the most detailed pictures of gravitational lensing ever taken. So what can we learn from a picture like this? Quite a lot, actually. The fainter and redder galaxies are further away in space, and because the speed of light is finite, that means we are also seeing these galaxies as they were billions of years ago, almost all of the way back to the beginning of the universe. One of the big unanswered questions in astronomy today is, how did the galaxies that we see around us form? How did they get from amorphous blobs of gas in the earliest days of the universe to the vast array of spirals and ellipticals that we see now? When did the first stars in those galaxies form, and what were they like? Now with this deep field, we can put together the most detailed timeline yet of how galaxies evolve over time. Starting with the faintest and reddest points of light in the deep field, the most distant galaxies, we can work our way to brighter and closer galaxies, representing later points in time and see how they change. With this image and future observations with JWST, we can piece together how stars in the first galaxies converted hydrogen and helium into heavier elements, and how we got to where we are today. This image represents just one of the many, many discoveries that JWST will make during its operation. If yesterday and today are anything to go by, we'll have some very exciting episodes of radio astronomy coming soon. Thank you for tuning in tonight. My name is Andrew Nye, and have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with Nuestro Patio. Good night. Good night.